Welcome to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, the greatest living American writer, a Rotten Tomatoes-approved film critic, a three-time Jeopardy champion. I'm just so interesting, but not as interesting as this show. We talk about the worlds of books and film and streaming TV based off of articles that are published on Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We have a great show for you this week. We're going to be talking about the new Kristen Bell show on Netflix, The Woman in the House Across the Street from The Girl in the Window. Yes, it's a parody of contemporary thrillers. We're also going to talk about the new Jackass movie that is out this week. But first, we're going to talk about The Gilded Age on HBO, a Julian Fellows program that is not so good. But our critic is here to talk about it. Entertainingly, Matthew Ehrlich will join me in just a minute after this short musical intro. Her beauty was sold. Her beauty was sold to a man with a beard for his doggone gold. Wonder where she found them. She's just a bird in a gilded cage. Hell, hell. She sold her soul for an old man's gold. Hell, hell. She found that you could. There are TV showrunners who I try to avoid at all costs. Aaron Sorkin is one of them. Uh, and another one is Julian Fellows, the creator of Downton Abbey. I watched much of Downton Abbey, uh, although toward the end I really got bored and turned off by it. I, I guess I found it somewhat novel the first couple of seasons, and I've avoided, well, I haven't avoided, I've, I've seen some of his dreadful BBC shows. I will be, however, avoiding at all costs his new HBO series, The Gilded Age, which is set, you guessed it, in the Gilded Age of the United States in New York, the uh, stomping grounds of Edith Wharton and Henry James. Matthew Ehrlich, on the other hand, is watching The Gilded Age, and he writes for us about uh, about television, and Matthew's here with me to discuss this this show. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Good. So you wrote a very funny review of The Gilded Age, and you didn't have, you didn't have much good to say about it. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about uh, Julian Fellows, the creator of The Gilded Age first. Now, not like it matters whether or not Julian Fellows is gay, but... Of course not, no. <laughs> is he gay... Or is he just kind of annoyingly posh? Is he gay or is he British? Yeah, exactly. You know, I don't know. I just Googled, uh, is Julian Fellows gay? And it took me to this really long Vanity Fair article that I can't get through at the moment. But, I, you know, I don't know. I don't think he is. So the Gilded Age and Julian Fellows products are then just uh, sort of annoyingly twee British in, in the worst possible way. You know, and, and as you were saying before, you, you didn't like Downton Abbey. You, you loathe the Downton Abbey uh, product. Yeah, and I wonder if it's because I was thinking, you know, I loved Mad Men, for instance, and I thought that Downton Abbey was supposed to be like turn-of-the-century British Mad Men. Maybe I was not really approaching it the way I should have, which is it's just a, it's a soap opera with lovely costumes and sets. I see the Julian Fellows over as being kind of like um, – Dickens and Jane Austen, but put through, remember that Michael Keaton movie Multiplicity where Michael Keaton went through this machine and worse and worse copies of him kept coming out. I feel like he minds that, that classic British parlor drama vein, but it, but it doesn't quite have the, the wit 
it's like there's Jane Austen who created the marriage plot, and then there's Barbara Cartland who like mass marketed the cr- the crap out of it, or something like that. It's like you know if you like this and you've exhausted all of your BBC programming, here's Downton Abbey. <laughs> I just feel like it's a long way down the slope from let's say Brideshead revisited on PBS. Yeah, yeah, and Downton Abbey. <laughs> right, and now just like. All the other big time showrunners, Ryan Murphy, Aaron Sorkin, et cetera, et cetera. Julian Fellows has carte blanche to make whatever he wants for whoever he wants. And now he has this show on HBO. Right. But then he also made Gosford Park, which is one of my favorite movies, which then begs the question, how much of that is just Robert Altman, you know, taking his script and, you know, tailoring it to satisfy whatever he wanted to do? Because a lot of that is improvised. But there was, you know, there was genuinely a sense of, you know, upstairs, downstairs, the servants versus the ruling class, new money coming in, all of these issues are being explored. So that was, you know, it's interesting, like what happened. But, but it didn't have a, a, a season long where Mr. Bates was on trial for murder. <laughs> or the most hilariously bad episode of, of Downton Abbey of all time, where the the World War One victims, you know, all bandaged up, come to stay at Downton Abbey. I mean, the thing about, you know, the, the, these other great works of art that we've mentioned is that they're, they're, they have great source material that was written at the time. And I feel like Downton Abbey was this wink and nod to current politics, current social issues and so forth. Like, you know, everyone seems to be playing to this idea of wouldn't it be great if this particular time in history were sensitive to what we feel is important as, you know, 21st century viewers. And the thing is, is like, I feel like Fellows' heart is really with the upper crust yeah. at the end of the day. He does portray the lower classes as human. You know, the Gilded Age is set in New York City at the end of the 19th century. Do those same dynamics come into play in that show? Well, you know, it's kind of like how, um, you know, apparently Oprah Winfrey didn't really enjoy doing all those makeover uh, episodes, but, you know, the ratings really like went sky high. So she constantly had them. I think that people really responded to the wealth of Downton Abbey. And despite the fact that he might have wanted to do like, a, you know, here are the servants downstairs and, you know, and here are the rich people and we're just going to like go back and forth. I think that there was clearly, you know, an indication in focus groups and in who became famous that really was like about the rich people. And so now uh, in the Gilded Age, yes, it's the servants are there, but they're not very present. And to, to be quite honest, I'm not all that interested in them to begin with either. So, you know, I'm part of that problem as well. The thing you point out in your review is that the uh, there's a black character, a prominent black character in, in the Gilded Age, and the characters tend to treat her with with sort of 21st century values, <laughs> which you find ridiculous and hilarious. There's something, you know, admirable about the fact that this woman, uh, her name is Peggy, during the Gilded Age, you know, this historical period, slavery has just been abolished technically, and there has emerged a black bourgeoisie. So, you know, what's nice is that they're showing a black character and they're not making her the victim of every racist trope you've ever seen. Like she's not escaping a lynching, like Klansmen are, you know, burning her house down. She's presented as a character, but it is kind of like a disnification of like race relations <laughs> during that time. Um, it feels as though even the way that she's, you know, situated with this, you know, old guard family seems a little bit incidental and a little bit like, 
you know, the problem that they're having on Sex in the City, where, you know, everyone complained about how white Sex in the City is. So now with, and just like that, they've added these black characters and these characters just don't, they're like astroturf. They just don't really organically seem to belong in the story. They just seem to be like a, hey, don't speak ill of us on Twitter kind of thing, you know? Well, the thing you say about the Gilded Age, you you call it, I I believe the phrase you use is, strangely amateurish, you know, that the dialogue is very stilted and the story is very, it kind of beats you over the head. And and that, e- that even the costumes and sets, it's the Gilded Age, you'd think they would have nice costumes and sets, but even those you, you don't seem to dig. Yeah, there seems to be this general sense of um, everyone looks nice, everyone looks of the period. In the plot line, there's supposed to be this conflict between so-called old money and so-called new money. And there doesn't seem to be a real aesthetic difference between these two camps. Um, Everyone seems to have a lot of money and they dress well. It doesn't really, everyone just looks rich to me. It doesn't really seem, I'm not seeing it. As you say, it's all, it's, it's, it's like they're constantly stating their theses, you know, and they're constantly saying, this is the Gilded Age or something along those lines. Yeah. You know how you talk to someone at a reunion who was popular in high school and they never actually come out and say that they were popular in high school? They're like, oh, yeah, I had my friends and everyone hated us for some reason. You know, it's like people who had old money back then didn't go around calling themselves old money. They were just like, oh, these people moved in across the street. Gosh, you know, who are they? It's, you know, like you don't like you don't recognize the food chain when you're at the top of the food chain. And everyone is just, you know, like, hi, I'm old money. This is new money. Oh, and here's a black woman. You know, it's very, very stated. You know, it's a little lazy, frankly. It's like they couldn't really, you know, they couldn't convey that through costume, through scenery, through, you know, even the script. I mean, you know, Wharton does this beautifully. She never really comes out and states these things out loud. But you just kind of know from reading, like, oh, this person is barely invited to the party. This person is ruling things. You just know these things. Yeah, I mean, I feel like why wouldn't you just go back and watch Martin Scorsese's *The Age of Innocence*, which is you know one of the one of the great movies, uh, one of certainly one of the, one certainly one of the great adaptations of a novel ever ever filmed, despite a kind of a weird performance from Winona Ryder. You know, <laughs> it's like why would you want to? Why, why would you even try to top that? Exactly. And the thing is also is that what does happen is that the the new money does come in and completely take over. Um, There's a sense when you're watching these first two episodes, like, oh, no, these poor, you know, these poor new moneyed people, they're just being shunned by old money and whatever they to do. Number one, they're going to be fine. And number two, old money doesn't have a lot of money. So, of course, the new money comes in and they spend lavishly. Uh, and this whole, there's this plot in the first episode where Bertha Russell, who's played by uh, Carrie Coons, she's a bit of a striver. Um, and she has this home built by Stanford White. It's huge. It's massive. It's got a great ballroom. And she has a huge party. And everyone's, of course, talking about her house and wanting to look at it from behind their curtains and so forth. And no one comes to this party. And, you know, I call bullshit. Everyone would have shown up to the party. I mean, they would have talked behind her back and they would have been like, you know, scornful and so forth. But this idea that she would have been like outright shunned, like people would have definitely showed up. Old money would have eat their food, dance in their ballroom, swim in their pool. Sure. Or, or no money for that matter. I, I, I would, I'd go to that party. I'd go to any party. I'll go to any party. Exactly. Yeah. So the, obviously the Gilded Age, bit of a disaster. 
But your article, your review is a bit of a success, I, I think. And I would like you now to read your closing paragraph, which is one of my favorite closing paragraphs in a book and film globe article. Ever. Thank you. I would love to. If Gilded Age creator Julian Fellows were to remake the 1986 gay porn classic, The Pizza Boy He Delivers, there would be a lot of dialogue like this. Yes, I brought a pizza. That's why you summoned me. But now that I'm in your home, I was thinking that since we are both handsome and physically fit, we should have penetrative sex, and the pleasure I derive from it will make payment for this pizza unnecessary. However, before we begin, I'm going to put on this condom. You see, it's 1986, and right now a fatal disease for which there is no cure or sufficient treatment is ravaging the gay community. Madonna is a promising young pop star taking the world by storm right now. Ronald Reagan is our president. Matthew Ehrlich, thank you very much for that dramatic reading. <laughs> the Gilded Age is on HBO. Watch it at your own risk. Matthew, we will talk to you and read your stuff very soon. Thank you. show on Netflix that parodies the woman in peril thrillers that were so popular in the last decade, The Girl on the Train, The Woman in the Window, Gone Girl, and others. This show is called The Woman in the House Across the Street from the Girl in the Window. So you kind of see where it's going. It stars Kristen Bell. It definitely uh, accumulates all the cliches of that genre and and mixes them up into a sort of weird uh, grab bag of stuff. And it's a satire. It's not always an effective one. Rachel Llewellyn, our uh, frequent contributor, uh, writes our monthly streaming guide, among other things, is here to talk to me about it. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I actually wrote this review. You you didn't write it, but I, I knew somehow I was like, who who writes for the site has seen the show? And I was like, Rachel is Rachel is watched. <laughs> you immediately thought of me. Thank you. <laughs> well, you, you know, you like the comedy. <laughs> yeah, I do. I and do. and this like- one was subtle. Yeah, and you and you you know, and you have sort of a, a skewed sense of humor, and which is one of the things I like about you. And you know, it's like this show was not as funny as it should have been. I guess is is was my is my main criticism. Wouldn't you agree? I would. I, I think some of the problems come from the pacing. I I really think that it didn't lend itself very well to being serialized. I feel like they could have done like a really good job sort of packing it in a little bit tighter, if you will. I feel like a lot more people would have picked up on the satire, although that's kind of part of the fun, isn't it? That a lot of people weren't even sure. I mean, this this is slated in Netflix under like TV crime serials. It's not comedy. It's not satire. So I, I think a lot of people are consuming this on streaming, not really aware and just kind of coming at it from that perspective. And this genre is already kind of so over the top that I, I think it almost can play straight, you know? Yeah. I mean, but there's, you know, there's a an extended gag involving of it. Proloquist dummy. And, you know, Kristen Bell's character, She's her name is Anna. She lives in a very nice suburban house by herself. She's divorced. And I'm, I'm just going to give this, this bit away. Her little daughter was eaten by a serial killer in prison because the girl went with her father, who is a forensic psychologist, on take your daughter to work day. And she got locked in this room accidentally with this cannibal serial killer who ate her. 
this is the kind of material we're dealing with. And so for people to not see that this is a parody is, is, is almost unbelievable to me. And then, you know, uh, and Chris, Kristen Bell, like she takes an entire bottle of wine and empties it into these enormous wine glasses and has a has a bowl full of corks on her kitchen counter. And, you know, it's obviously satire. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it just speaks to kind of the ridiculous nature of all these movies that that don't take themselves as satire, just kind of a send up of the whole, you know, uh, what do they call it? Like mommy noir, I think they call it, you know, chick noir. (laughs) Yeah. And if you I don't know if you read or saw the woman in the window, but uh, that character in that book is always looking out the window, drinking wine and popping pills. Oh, yeah. She's guzzling wine. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) A girl on the train, the same thing. She's always just like, you know, kind of creeping around her ex's house, drinking wine, seeing things, seeing murders. So all the cliches, I mean, the people who wrote this obviously like love, hate the genre. I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, Anna herself, you know, of course, as you watch the series, you realize she becomes a really unreliable narrator. You know, her psychiatrist, uh, her husband, who's a psychiatrist, admits like in the very last episode that he had her on a class A psychotropic (laughs) instead of something like, well, Butron, which he sort of blames himself for after the fact. But the narrative just, you know, develops along this series of these really kind of heavy handed, the same sort of ham fisted sort of red herring storylines that we see in these type of movies that if you don't see them coming from a mile off, I guess the joke's kind of on you, huh? Right. But, you know, and that's so there's this meta joke. And at the same time, you get Kristen Bell, who is like out solving crimes, you know, and, you know, she's (laughs) Veronica Mars. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's a great. That's actually a really great kind of juxtaposition of those roles. That's hilarious. I do kind of see like whiffs of the Veronica Mars when she's you know breaking into homes and stuff like that. But it's, yeah, doing it's research weird. and and, and, <laughs> yeah. and every every time she finds out a little factoid, she says bingo. <laughs> exactly. There's one scene where she drops three bingos in a row, and it's you know it's pretty funny if. If you get the joke, but it's sort of, I mean, you know, back to kind of the serialization of this show, like it could have been a lot more compact and I think that would have made it satire punch a little harder. I, it's, I mean, is that part of the satire mimicking these really kind of drawn out seven or eight episode crime streaming series that are so popular right now? I mean, is it sort of a send up of like the new millennial soap opera? I, I, I can't tell. What, what's your take? That's a good point. You know, it's just, it's kind of totally all over the place because there are moments where it's super kind of melodramatic and gory and not funny. And then there are moments where I found myself legitimately laughing out loud if you get the joke. And then there are these meta jokes and then there are these things that aren't really jokes. It's kind of like there are moments where you're like, this is kind of like if the Wayans brothers or the Zucker brothers had done it. And then there are other moments where you're like, this is just a bad Netflix show. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's sort of kind of where the cleverness comes in is like people, people who want to can read it like the second thing you said, like that bad Netflix show. And I think some people will actually enjoy it as such. And it's interesting to me that like people are putting out these sort of like genreless poking fun, not just at the genre, but at the type of viewer that consumes it. It's really interesting kind of seeing those layers, you know, kind of layered in there, you know, like a casserole. 
<laughs> and like a cat, like the casserole that uh, Anna continually makes and then drops in the street. Every time she walks outside, every time she walks outside, it rains on her and then she faints. She has some kind of rain related trauma. It, it's ridiculous. You know, and I, the reason we're talking about this show is because it's super popular. It's been number one on Netflix or close to number one on Netflix since since it appeared. And, and I think that that has to do with a the popularity of the genre that is satirizing and be the popularity of Kristen Bell. And if you, you know, I don't want to give away the ending, but there's sort of a, not a really a cliffhanger, but it's clear that there's, there's more mysteries to be solved. And I, I think they're going to do a second season of this thing. Oh, for sure. I, I definitely hope that the cameo, I don't know if I can give it away, that the cameo at the very end of episode eight, uh, hopefully that will lead to like a repeat appearance. I'm hoping to read more about season two soon because I really uh, appreciated her going close. I'll just say it. There's going close. I'm not really like plot spoiling here. She plays this. She appears. No, I'm <laughs> Yeah. She's this high powered business lady in this jet next to Kristen Bell's character, Anna. And, you know, she, you know, goes into the bathroom and is later found, you know, Anna walks in and finds her bloodied and slumped in the bathroom. She runs to a flight attendant and the flight attendant says, no one was sitting next to you. And this really melodramatic cheese ball moment but it's i'm hoping she'll come back in season two and that storyline will kind of be elaborated on and just like with season two i didn't watch all of season one i watched episodes one through four and then i was like you know what i'm bored (laughs) and i skipped to episode eight but i would watch at least the first couple of episodes of season two because you know there's something oddly compelling about this show yeah, like I said, cramming into a 90 minute sat- satirical, you know, movie or, you know, whatever, even like 90 minute miniseries or whatever. It, and it would go a lot. Better. I would have loved this at an hour and 40 minutes because I think you could have delivered all the blows and you wouldn't have had all, all the filler and subplots. But that's not the era in which we live in an era where a satire of a bad movie can get an eight hour episode order from netflix absolutely yeah i mean just the the accessibility of streaming means that these kind of production entities can afford to string the story out over multiple units you know because we know folks binge and you don't really have to make the story really brief or compelling anymore because you know it's just going to kind of have a steady drip and and people will continue to subscribe and watch so it'll be interesting to see how it strings out (laughs) man give me some of that cheddar I was in Hollywood at the wrong time, dude. Seriously. (laughs) I know. Maybe. Maybe it'll still happen. Maybe. (laughs) Anyway, Rachel, thank you for stopping in, and we will catch you next time. Fun as always. Thank you, Neil. Bingo. This weekend's big movie release is the fourth movie in the Jackass series, Johnny Knoxville and his rapidly aging group of uh, pranksters, uh, Gen X pranksters are back at it. And Sarah Stewart has just returned from her screening of Jackass Forever. And she, I'm sure, has has lots of, uh, lots of laughter to report. Sarah, how's it going? Good, good, thanks. I, I do have some laughter to report. So you're a fan of the Jackass franchise. You know, what I find interesting about uh, Jackass is, you know, when it first came out, it was, well, first it was an MTV series. So it was this like vaguely disreputable youth culture property. 
And, you know, now these guys are like, you know, middle-aged dads uh, and they're still kind of doing the same thing. And now it's like this beloved, um, almost nostalgia-based comedy franchise. It is. And it's really interesting to think about it in the landscape of everything now. I mean, you can certainly find an endless number of people doing stupid human tricks on YouTube and TikTok and all of the other places you can find those. So the question is, does this, is this funny at all anymore? Is it relevant? Will it work? And I think that the thing that does work about it is just that it's, it remains its own brand and it does feel very old fashioned in some ways. It, it felt like sort of prank uh, comfort food to me. Obviously, the pranks are the big draw and, and, and the comedy, but also, you know, at this point, it's like a cast of characters. And so, yeah, you can watch people do crazy stuff on YouTube, but these are not people you've been watching do crazy stuff for 30 years. Exactly. And we've, you know, we've, we've watched, well, if you're like me and you've been watching since the show, we've watched these guys age and, you know, sort of age hard. I mean, the big stars like Johnny Knoxville and Steve-O, you know, are definitely worse for wear. I've seen Johnny Knoxville talk before about how he had to wear a catheter for years because of some particularly gruesome getting hit in the nuts prank that he did. Um, and, and you know, Steve-O is older and grayer. Everybody pretty much is. But that makes this one particularly endearing because these guys are infinitely more breakable and they're still as game as ever to throw themselves into whatever makes the other guys laugh. What's the next frontier here? What, what have they done in this movie? I guess you don't want to give too much away, but are there any stunts, are there any stunts in particular that, that, that had your uh, jaw on the floor? Yeah. Well, again, you know, I think that it's, it's in a lot of ways, it's more the same. Jeff Tremaine is directing again and he sort of sticks to what they do really well, which in my opinion, when they're at their best is when they stage these very elaborate settings with costumes and backdrops often, and then have everything go completely chaotic in, in a very sort of elegantly slapstick way. So what my, I really like the opening scene, which is a, sort of a recreation of a Godzilla movie, this, this giant lizard walking through the streets, mayhem everywhere, and I don't think this is going to ruin it for anybody, but the uh, monster in question is actually Chris Pontius's penis painted up to look like Godzilla. And then, you know, you have everybody scaled down and uh, the city ends up awash in a, a white uh, fluid at the end of the bit. And it's all disgusting and hilarious. I mean, I guess you had to be there. <laughs> <laughs> my other my other uh, favorite one was a, a much shorter and simpler uh stunt which just involved uh, the entire or I, th I think six or seven people dressed up like a marching band and a treadmill uh going at full speed to me the things that like that that, that involve hard physical contact with something like a wall while somebody is in costume are very funny to me they go real hard on the uh on the, the dick and ball shots here there's just a lot of scenes of people getting hit in the crotch. I've seen it compared to the Ow My Balls show in Idiocracy, which I don't think is entirely inaccurate. Like, it certainly isn't uh, highbrow entertainment. But I also think the production value here is substantially higher. And if you're in for that kind of thing, which I am, it's very funny. Well, I think my, I think Mike, I think Mike Judge, you know, used Jackass as some of the template for Ow My Balls. No doubt. The fact that this is, that this is entertainment. Um, you know, is, is 
entertaining and funny in its own right. I mean, listen, in in uh, perilous times like these, I think you take the laughs where you can find them. And if you are someone who has an affinity for lowbrow slapstick humor, I think this really delivers. And in a way, it provides some guilt-free laughs. I think it's good that it's here and that they're doing. They're still they're still doing it. That said, I do want to say I, I was it was really tempered for me by not being able to handle the way they use animals anymore. And I know they've done this in other movies, but it it feels glaringly to me now like like something you would have seen at a circus. There's one stunt they do where they have this guy in a uh, he's in a shock collar or something getting a lie detector test, and then a bear comes into the room and eats salmon out of his jock strap or something, and you know, there are other other stunts with spiders and snapping turtles and bees and uh, you know, things that are very obviously primal. They, cinematically, they work because they play on people's very visceral fears of poisonous animals and dangerous animals. But in this day and age, I just don't think that it comes off well. I think it makes the, the wonderful sort of benign, dumb masculinity of the human stunt is really undermined by the sort of cringiness of using animals when I don't think that they have to be. So, you know, you don't mind that uh, Jackass kind of goes around sort of the this woke cultural standards of the day, but maybe animal cruelty to spiders is still animal cruelty is what you're saying. Well, I think the lovely thing, and, and I'm sure there are a lot of people that disagree with me here, but I think that the wonderful thing about Jackass at its best, at its most slapstick, is that it it doesn't have to be unwoke. I don't think that there's anything, I mean, I, I don't know who could really find fault ultimately with a bunch of guys who voluntarily got together and thought up a bunch of creative ways to hit each other in the nuts. I mean, it's it's all very homoerotic in a way. There's a lot of body positivity. There's all kinds of shapes and sizes available. There's uh, more racial diversity here. There's even one woman who inexplicably is involved. I think that's all fantastic. But uh, and, and so I think it's interesting that it, it does seem like it could hold up fairly well in 2022. I just think the animals really uh, are going to ding it a lot for me. Fair enough. Well, next the next Jackass movie, they're not even going to have to put on the bad grandpa costume. They're just going to be bad grandpas. <laughs> exactly. Sarah Stewart reviewed Jackass Forever, which is in theaters now. Sarah, we'll talk to you soon. Don't um, don't hit yourself in. I guess you you won't hit yourself in the nuts, but don't hit yourself anywhere. Just take care. <laughs> take care. Don't, don't, don't jump God. off any buildings. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the people will survive in their environment. All right. Thanks, Sarah, for talking to me about Jackass. In theaters now, soon to be under TVs as well. Also, thanks to Rachel Llewellyn for joining me to talk about the woman in the house across the street from the girl in the window. I have to practice saying that over and over again to get the order right. And also thanks to Matthew Ehrlich for writing about and talking about The Gilded Age on HBO. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. We're at www.bookandfilmglobe.com publishing fresh content nearly every day for your entertainment and enjoyment and edification. We will talk to you soon. We might cut out the laugh.
last bit where, where I tell you not to hit yourself in the nuts. Yeah. Don't take any cunt punches. Yeah, I, I didn't see that. <laughs> Original production.